Well, I wonder if you think that Christianity or your faith deals with evil. Does Christianity deal with evil that we see all around us? You can almost sympathize with the Jewish people who were struggling to see Jesus clearly at the time of our text. They were trying to figure out who he was. They, they thought they had some kind of concept, but they still had questions that would pop up on the regular. They were asking themselves, now, the Messiah, what do you do with evil? Because the long-awaited Messiah had said he's come. And the long-awaited Messiah has said that he has brought his very kingdom with him, the very kingdom of God, or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. It is here. And it was supposed to be, in their eyes, a a time of triumph, a, a time of real glory. And you can imagine them looking around. Maybe like some of you do on the regular and go, what about all this? What are you, you going to do with this? Remember what Matthew previously told you and tells all of us about Jesus in parable form. There was a sower in the verses 1 through 23 of chapter 13. There was a sower who brings good news. Jesus says that the kingdom of God will advance even though hearts are hard. Some people will place the word of God into competition with cares of the world. Some people will receive it. Some people will take the word of God seemingly to understand it or know it, but then reject it later. And some will just have nothing to do with it at all. The parable of the various soils and receiving God's word. The the kingdom, though, the instruction from that passage is that on whatever soil God plants his seed, the kingdom advances. Jesus says that sons and daughters of God will receive his word because they are good soil, seen and proved to everyone around them by their very fruit. It's a hopeful parable, the one that we talked about last week. One shows God's power, one that shows God's purpose, and one that shows God's plan by his word actually going out. The application feels so hopeful. If we receive the word as God presents it, we can hope that God will grow us and produce fruit from us. Trust in the good seed of the advancing kingdom. Messiah is here. Everything will be awesome. But again, you can imagine these Jewish people watching Jesus teach this. You can imagine them being a little bit confused that this Messiah, who seems to be bringing his advancing kingdom to the earth, isn't crushing evil all around them. Where's the sword? they were talking about. Why doesn't he look like a lion, like it had been predicted? Why is evil present? Why didn't Jesus just exterminate, or get rid of, or pluck out things that appear like weeds in the midst of a garden? Why didn't he do away with evil right now? And so Jesus tells these people another parable, commonly known as the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. Here Jesus addresses disappointment their disappointment at him. He addresses this, their disappointment at him and all of the evils of this world. Now for a second, the parable sounds like bad news. There's evil all around because Jesus in some will tell people that when you see evil and when you endure evil, you must continue to tolerate it or endure it. But at the end, he teaches the good news with his bad news. He teaches the good news of the evil not lasting. So Jesus addresses their concerns. He understands their concern, their confusion. But he wants to tell them in another parable form that he is the Messiah with all power and will deal with evil according to his own time, but not according to their timetable or their will. 
But in his timing, his will, his plan, you, you can understand that the tension that they have, many of us, I would imagine, regularly deal with this tension of why are you doing this now according to my will and my plan? Now, I want to go through this, uh, this several path, uh, verses in a couple of sections, but first I just want to kind of survey the text as a whole. What is the section of Scripture about? Verses 24 through 33, there are actually three parables inside this. He tells one, tells another, tells a third, and then explains the first, but I want to just survey a little bit of this passage as a whole. You'll remember that Matthew chapter 13 records seven parables all about the mystery of the kingdom of God. What Jesus does, or what Matthew shows Jesus doing, is telling parable after parable after parable is almost dumping information on their desk about this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The first is like the parable of the sower. And the second, it's like the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where a second kingdom parable presents itself. Now, both of these parables use agriculture pictures of sowing and reaping. And one thing that might help you kind of understand how to read different parables of the scriptures, is they will sometimes use similar language, but don't, don't allow that language to over, overlap. So last week's parable, the parable of the soils or the sower, it used seeds in a particular way. Now this parable will use the same image or symbol of a seed, but it's going to use that a little bit different. So to give a hard break between these two parables. They're trying to bring your attention to the kingdom of heaven, but he's going to be using commonly held things in order to explain that. So what he's going to do, and Matthew is brilliant in this, is within their confusion, he will allow Jesus to explain to them using a parable, but then he will show the critical differences between these two parables, where the parable of the soil is about the good seed in a variety of soils. That's what the parable of the soil is about. One good seed in a variety of soils. It shows how Christians and non-Christians react to the very word of God. So you can imagine this taking place like within a church. How do people who come to worship together receive God's word? One, one is clearly a believer, and the other three soils, they, they, some of them might look like believers, but they prove themselves not to be, or some rejected altogether. One good seed, multiple soils. And almost in the same way, but in a different form, this parable this week about the weeds, the parable of the weeds is about the good and bad seed that goes to one soil. The good and the bad seed that shows, or that goes to one soil. So this shows how humanity as a whole is being inundated by God's good word and Satan's good word. So last week, four soils. This week, one giant soil, two competing interests here. Now a landowner, just to survey this, a landowner sowed seed in the field. And during the night, his enemy planted weeds in the same field. And as good seed would grow, weeds also grew alongside it. From here, the parable focuses on people's response to the wheat and the weeds. You've got onlookers who are going, wait, where did these weeds come from? And what do you want us to do about it? They wanted to pluck them up. They wanted to pull the weeds out. But the master of the land said in verse 29, verse 29, no. The owner says and commands the servants to let the wheat and the weeds grow together because the weeds will be dealt with at his time, at his harvest. There the weeds will burn. The wheat will be stored. And the imagery here would be familiar with people who would have originally heard this lesson told. But they didn't get the riddle. Even, even those closest to Jesus were confused. We, we see this at the very end, that where the, where the parable is explained, it was the disciples who were going, Jesus, can you explain that again? I don't understand what's happening. So look at verses 37 through 43 of Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus actually interprets this parable in verses 37 where he says, And he answered them and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. 
Verse 38, and the field is the kingdom, or the, the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares, or the wheat, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So he's interpreting this parable for them. Another time where God, in his grace, is interpreting this very teaching for them. But he doesn't just interpret it for them. He actually gives this implications, or he gives them things to understand and to know from this. Look at verses 40 through 43. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. He takes it and says, it's going to be like this in your life. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 43, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what's this section all about? What is Jesus doing here with this section as a whole? These Jewish people expected the Messiah the Son of God, to come in as a warrior king who would overthrow Rome and make Israel a dominant nation again. But Jesus was not accomplishing these Jewish hearers' political agenda. So they had confusion or questions about him. We thought you would come in this way. What are you doing? And so he tells them. The disciples were so troubled by Jesus' messianic non-aggression when he interpreted himself as acting like a calm farmer, not overwhelmed at the trouble of the world because he has everything in his hands and everything is under his command. We see that what Jesus is demonstrating to his people and to everyone who will hear him is that he is one who is coming to minister to their personal needs. He goes to the enemy, which was strange to them. He went to the enemy and offered that enemy personal forgiveness. Jesus, what he is saying is he was not aiming to address societal needs. He wasn't aiming to address a political agenda. So the people were looking around in the midst of this apparent newly arrived kingdom and saying, if you're so great, why is evil still here and what are you going to do about it? And what Jesus emphatically and vividly says is that he is like a patient working farmer whom evil will not overcome nor outlast. And that in itself is just such a Such a cool and beautiful and powerful picture. What is Jesus like? He even controls evil. And evil will have its day. Now that's what this section is about. But more deeply, this section isn't just talking, isn't just simply saying that Jesus is in charge of everything and evil will have its day. But more deeply, this passage of Scripture, these several passages of Scripture, this parable, are revealing two significant things. So if you're using an outline, I'm now on point two. He is revealing two significant things about the world. There is a dark reality about the world, and there is a definite response that people are to give and not give. Now, what is this section revealing? Well, first, it is revealing a dark reality. Why are there wheat and weeds in the field? You know, some of you who are farmers or some of you that love your front yard, you ask yourself that all the time. Like, where did you come from? I sprayed for you. I exterminated you. And how are you over there? What happened here? Why are there wheat and weeds in one field? I only planted one. Why would you look around our world today and see great things and awful things at the same time? I thought we were supposed to, as humans, get better at being humans. Haven't we all learned on the playground to share and be nice and to be kind? And then what do we do? We grow up and we beat each other up. What's up with that? 
God-fearing people and dishonoring evil all existing at the same time, our, our long passage brings to light the influence, though, of external factors. Within our heart, we are, we are seeing external factors at play. Why evil in this field? Well, Jesus says, because an enemy sowed weeds in the field. What's being sown here? Keep in mind these parables don't always overlap in their symbolic emphasis. What's being sown here? The seed being sown in the parable of the soils was the word of God. And in our passage, uh, the farmer sowed a seed too. But his seeds, according to verse 38, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. You can imagine God planting believers. And the weeds are the sons of evil. Now this verse sets the context that the field is the world. So a way to look at this field is, this is the world. It has, it has believers in it and non-believers in it. Or, or God-fearing people and God-hating people. Who is sown by one? One is sown by the Lord and the other is sown by an enemy at the night. The parable of the sower's context, you could say, is the church with converted and unconverted people within it. The, the parable of the weeds, the context here, is not the church but the world with converted and unconverted people in it. This parable reveals the existence of evil within the same world, not, not within the church. That's not what this is talking about. It's a different parable bringing to light a different emphasis on the person of Jesus. It's about the church within the world, not the world within the church. I heard one guy teach about this passage, and he was saying this is why it is wrong to do church discipline because of how uh, Jesus interacts with these various weeds here. It's wrong to even do membership or discipline because we should recognize that anywhere you go, it should have wheat and weed within it. Because this guy said, Jesus is patient with a messy church. And I highly doubt that. And actually, I know that's not true. That's false, and that's very dangerous. Jesus is never fine with sin. In its context, it's the opposite. Because of an evil world, our church, the church of Christ, Christ's church, the church should strive continually for purity, for holiness, for otherworldly faith, you could say. Now, one of the things that this passage shows us, and that if the world is full of evil and righteousness, that one of the things it shows us is that evil should be expected by believers. You and I should not be surprised that people acted like we once acted, right? We should expect evil. Verse 37 says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus saying he is the one planting the good seed. What are the seeds that grow to be beautifully strong wheat? Verse 38, it says, the sons of the kingdom. But evil should be expected because it's in verse 30, it's the enemy or the devil who sows weeds. Now, oftentimes we, we feel like evil is, is chaotic. We feel like it's out of control. But what the Bible presents is, is that it may feel chaotic to us. Evil has its own agenda. Evil should be expected. It's not random. Because it's the calculated work of the devil. As Jesus plants sons of the kingdom, the devil plants sons of Satan. Look at verse 25 of the text. A little context for how Satan works in the world. It's amazing to see this. It, it says that the enemy sows weeds in the field quote, while men were sleeping. How does, how does Satan do his work while men are sleeping? Now, be careful. These men aren't lazy. These men aren't being portrayed as careless. They were resting as night. You're supposed to go to sleep at night. You're supposed to work hard unto the Lord and then rest. 
yet evil is here in the world. They were resting at night after a long day, but as they slept, Satan himself sowed weeds into the field where we see that evil is in the world even after a good day's work. Now, I want you to think of, and this being an implication of this, think of all the places where God has, has called you to give good godly work. Think of all the places. You know, all of us are called to various things. Some of us are clearly called, you know, if you are married, you are called to love your wife or your spouse. If you have kids, sorry, you are called to be their parents. You know, for whatever time you are employed, you are called to be a good employee or to be a good boss. Think of all the places that God has placed you in and has called you to work. Now think of all those opportunities, those good opportunities for Satan to now work within your family, within your friends within your school, within your work, within your town, or within your society. We're to be good members of whatever circle God has placed us in. But friends, as you sleep, after giving a great godly work, Satan, he's been waiting. And while you sleep, he's at work. So evil should be expected. Remember who Satan hates? Remember who Satan hates clearly in the scripture? Satan hates more than anything God. What does Satan want more than anything? He wants to defame or bring down God. So as you aim to to be a godly parent, don't you think that he will revel in trying to mess that up more than anything else? As you want to love your spouse like Christ loved this church, don't you think he wants to break his way in there and, and infuse any kind of opportunity for that leverage to be broken away than that? Because, because we're supposed to love each other as God loves us. And he wants to laugh and say, look at, look at your marriages, God. They're worthless. Evil should be expected. Where God works, Satan wants to. We also see that evil is incredibly rebellious, or evil is sinful. Weeds are inevitable, but also appalling in their effect on wheat. They're a threat. In several commentaries about this passage, you'll find the belief that what Jesus was referencing was called a Darnell seed. A Darnell seed would grow as tall as wheat and would look just like it, but it was poisonous. This perfectly reflects the, the scheme of Satan, doesn't it? Here, here's the difference, though. By verse 41, Jesus plants sons of the kingdom to advance God's kingdom, and Satan plants the sons of evil in order to ob- obstruct God's agenda. So why is there evil? Well, part, because that's Satan's plan. Now, Christian, to you, is this how you view the world properly? viewing the world as expecting sin to run about. What sometimes appears as a cause and effect circumstance is actually satanic, calculated, planned, evil. Satan plants. Now, what does that make you want to do? Well, here we see a definite response. So not only do we see that there is a dark reality, but we also see that there is a definite response. What does it make you want to do when you look out, don't, don't immediately look around because people will be like, wait, is he thinking that about me? No, what happens when you go out into the world and you see evil people doing evil things? What does that make you want to do? They're bringing down the glory of God. The parable actually records two responses to the weeds planted in the field. There, there's a call for a human response and a promise of divine response. How should you and I look around and act in an evil anti-gospel world? How are we supposed to live amongst this world. And I think it's clear that Christians are sons of the kingdom in this text being planted. And, and try to not overthink this. We're, we're also the servants in this parable as well. Servants are serving the landowner and opposing the enemy's work. And 
and you can't follow Jesus and remain neutral or passive towards evil. And so so you see as a Christian, not only as you are planted as a son of the kingdom, but also as a Christian, you are also seen out as a field operating as a servant and going, uh, Lord, what about those people over there? Because you can't follow Jesus and remain neutral or passive towards evil around you. These people are aiming to do something. But what's interesting here is that the, the servants that Jesus, again, is teaching, Jesus is teaching people using a negative situation in order to talk about how he wants them to act. So what he's basically demonstrating or answering to them is when they ask, what do we do? And he answers with a couple of ways of, well, don't do this. The first way is assume. So friends, when you look out on an evil world, don't assume or don't have conjecture on what's going on. Look at verses 27 and 28, where it says that the servants of the master came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seeds? How, how, does, it, how does it have weeds in them? The first question was rhetorical. Did you sow good seeds? They knew the answer to that. They knew the master sowed good seed in his field, yet they asked the obvious. Carefully see what they're doing here. When they're asking the master, this situation, the weeds, made them question the master and his control of the situation. See how, see how subtle that is? Basically, the, ma- the servants of the master are now looking at the master and going, do you know what you're doing at all? Do you not look out and see what I'm doing? Do you, do you have any control of this? You see how subtle that situation takes effect? When evil presents itself, you and I quickly turn our attention away from submitting to God's control, where we then begin to question his own character. It's so subtle, but they are saying to the master, now I'm using parable form, they're saying to the Lord, do you not know what you're doing out there? They're questioning the authority and the goodness of God in the face of evil. Though there are weeds in the field, we see from this that the same God who planted them is the same God who's in control. Though there are weeds in the field, the same God who was gracious in planting the sons of the kingdom is the same God who is good all the time. Remember the Bible, before Matthew and after, almost all assurances of God's sovereignty in Scripture were written to persecuted people, often people in mortal danger. One of the most captivating and encouraging things that you and I will read from the very beginning to the very end is that it is known and common for God's people to have a war against them. But that doesn't mean that God is not in control. That doesn't mean that God's plan ultimately ultimately isn't carefully and precisely being carried out. But to the second question, the servants ask, so they first ask, do you not know what you're doing? The second question they ask, how does the field have weeds? This scenario didn't make sense to them. And honestly, that's pretty understandable through a narrow-minded reasoning. Weeds grow in opposition to the work of the master. He doesn't work against himself. He didn't plant those weeds. Why would he ever plant a son of a devil there? They didn't plant the bad seed themselves. How did this happen? Now the focus here, and this is subtle as well, their focus goes from the master now to the enemy. They take their face off the master, and now it goes towards the enemy, and this causes them to speculate. Right? They, they not only ask, God, do you know what you're doing? But they're also asking do you have any control over any situation? How did this happen? They see evil and they think it's all-powerful. They thought it got there themselves. They see evil and they think it's competitive. It will surely choke out the wheat. They focus on evil and they think God's aware. They're like knocking on his door earlier in the morning. The sun's out. Hello, there's wheat everywhere. 
In verse 28, the master responds, an enemy has done this. The servants didn't trust the master to know what he was doing, and so they asked him how this happened, and they asked then if they could go on a crusade against evil. They made the turn of events in here, and this leads to a second, don't do this. The first one is don't conjecture, don't have conjecture, don't speculate about what God is doing, even though we see evil in the world. But the, but the second thing, the second don't do this scenario is don't go on your own crusade acting as you think I ought to act. In the midst of evil, we should protect, we should not project on evil what is true about God. We shouldn't assume that God doesn't know or understand, but then secondly here, we shouldn't aim to do God's work for him. We should be very careful And here's the point of this. We should be very careful as Christians in our own efforts at activism. And we should be very careful at our own desire to go on our own crusade. When the servants heard someone evil planted something, weeds, in the soil, they were ready to take action. In verse 28, they said, want us to go get them? One commentator about this passage said that at first they want to know God's business. And now they want to do God's business. Now, to their credit, they asked for permission to dig up the weeds. To their credit, they asked for permission. When faced with evil, though, they were told to trust God's control. They were told to trust God's own timing. They were told to continue to do what they were called to do. The marching orders that they had the night before are the same marching orders that they had. Serve the field according to God's desire. H.B. Charles, a, um, a pastor in Florida, says this about this text. We are all activists by nature. We want to help God out. Evil compels us to help God out. But the issue here is while wanting to do what we think is right, we actually get in the way of what he knows is right for the weak and for the wheat. We get in God's way. As Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, H.B. continues on, as Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, he passed through a Samaritan village, the townspeople who would not receive him. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Here they wanted to get in the way of the Lord, and Jesus there rebukes them. He rebukes every servant who tries to help him by pulling weeds from the field. We servants of the Master have a job. Our job is is to reach sinners, not fix society. H.B. continues on, digging up weeds hinders the harvest. The servants were more of a threat than the enemy. The enemy could not stop the harvest because it is under God's control, yet he planted, or he allowed weeds to be planted strategically, counting on someone to be a sucker enough to do the dirty work. But the kingdom is about the king, not our causes. Not our agendas, not our politics. Do we not allow, or we should not allow our attempts to fix society to hinder Christ's own mission. Now all of us have a certain call. We have a certain thing to project. We have something specific to proclaim. And it is not in the interest of the wheat or the weeds to go up to someone and aim to pluck them out completely. The the imagery here is of exterminating. We have to remember that Christianity has something to offer that nothing else can. We have something to offer those who struggle in their sexuality. The gospel has something to offer people who are aiming at something that is unbiblical. We have have something to offer those who find themselves 
in great poverty and great wealth. The gospel has something to offer people who think that they have everything or think that they have nothing. We have something to offer those who are consumed by drugs or pornography or tyranny or pride or lust. The gospel is what we are called to proclaim. We're never called to go out, find the weeds, and pluck them out. A couple of years ago, actually several years ago, when I was working for a couple of weeks in Estonia with a government agency or government organization, I was there for three weeks in 2006. And one of the things that we got to do is we got to tour some of the sites because we were going to have events within several of these buildings. And one of the events that we were going to operate in or work in was the actual presidential palace. There was going to be a, a photo that was going to be taken there with the U.S. president at the time and the president of Estonia. And so for all that, we got to travel around within the palace and ask questions and see different things about it. And one of the things that I noticed in all of the pictures that were portrayed of these uh, presidents or prime ministers or, or chief operators of the government of Estonia, all, all of their dates stopped after a certain period of time. So they were born on this date, and then like five of them in a row, it, it said that their passing was in the 60s. You know, it didn't say 2016, it didn't say 1981, it said the 60s. And of course, that catches the eye and be like, what happened to all these guys in the 60s? You know, and what, what do I need to be aware of? And they go, well, we actually don't have a definite date for when they died, but we do know that they were summoned to the USSR for a particular meeting, and we never saw them again. And then in joking way, he said, so we just stopped hanging up photos of our leaders after this because we saw the precedent. Now, all that being said, it was that afternoon where we were taking a tour of another area, and it was around a bunch of churches, and so I asked the same guy, our, our basic tour guide from the State Department, what, what's the religious culture like here in Estonia? I, I know nothing about the Baltic states. I don't know anything about here. I was interested at some point in ministry at that time, but I was just interested as a Christian being like, what is the, what is, what is the religious experience like in Estonia? And he said, well, there's not one, and that's intentional. Because when Germany invaded, they forced Lutheranism down our throats. When Russia invaded, they forced Russian Orthodoxy down our throats. And so now that we have the land to ourselves, we don't want to hear from anyone about anything. Friends, I think that is a small example of how people see other Christians going in and aiming to pluck out the weeds rather than plant the good word. We can't change the hearts of men. I can't convince you to do anything. You can't convince me to do anything. Only the Lord can actually captivate our heart and turn it over completely to where we respond to him. Think about about what the gospel message is. Enemies of God now turn their affection toward him because of the work that he did. And what the parable of the wheat and the weeds is talking about is, hey, you see evil all around, and you're right, it's there, but let me do my work. Don't pluck out. Let me continue to plant. So we see here that this section of Scripture reveals a lot about evil and several things about our response, but also there is a promise within this long passage of Scripture here. There's a final promise of this passage of Scripture. Christianity doesn't just have an axe to grind. Okay, we have, we have Christ's atonement to offer. We don't just have an axe to grind, we have an atonement to offer, and that atonement comes with a promise, a determined reply we see within this passage of God responding to evil. In verse 29, the master answers his servant's request. No, 
in gathering the weeds, you uproot the wheat too. Don't pluck things up because you'll mess with my wheat. The master and servants were concerned about what the enemy has done. And they saw the matter from different perspectives. The, matter, the master was concerned about the wheat. And the servants were concerned about the weeds. You see that, you see that teaching here and how it, how it ought to instruct us and how we operate within a world that has evil and good. We should be constantly aiming to flame righteousness and to, to build it up in great faith, even within the church. What is our job as a church? What is our job as church members? To increase one another's growth and godliness. That's our job. It's not to go up to you and say, let me, let me find out the 90,000 ways that you are bad. It's like the Word of God will do that. Let me point you to the Word of God in righteousness and have him build you up in faith. The master was concerned about the wheat and the servants were concerned about the weeds. In dealing with weeds, they would damage the weeds, the master says. The church, and here's the instruction for us, the church must not be preoccupied with worldly activism or activist solutions to the problem of evil. We must be wise. We must be patient. We must be understanding, recognizing that whatever you're going through, we understand it because, as Paul said, such were some of us. And let me tell you how Christ invaded my life. We must be wise, patient, and understanding. Pulling weeds will not eradicate evil. It will hurt the harvest. Christ would permit the wheat instead of endangering the weeds, or instead of endangering the wheat. Far too often we are consumed with wanting to exterminate the field. <laughs> right? Man, it feels good. I got one of those propane torches for Christmas from my dad in December. And I'm finding all kinds of things to use that for. Ice, I melt it. Weeds, burn it. Like, it's amazing. I know some of you farmers do that with your fence line. You just walk around, burn it. It feels good to really pluck something out or torch something completely, but that is not our calling. It is not our calling to exterminate the world politically or economically or academically or sexually or culturally. But the danger and the promise of Christ is that we will uproot our gospel influence when we try to do this. We have a message that will crush sin. It's the same message that crushed our own pride. We cannot gather the weeds because we cannot tell the difference between weeds and wheat. One may look like the son of the kingdom, yet be the son of the evil one. How many of you would have smashed David after his incident with Bethsaida? Or uh, taking the woman to himself? How many of you would have smashed Peter when he denied Jesus and then denied Jesus and then denied Jesus in one night? Off, you would say to him. One might look like the son of evil. One may be the son of the kingdom. What often looks like weeds may be weak wheat. and We need to build those up. Remember, the sons of the kingdom were once the sons of evil ones. The sons of the kingdom aren't wheat because... They're better than the tares, but because they were planted there by the master. If you've got a Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Several books over. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and it says in verses 4 through 5. This is why we should be careful with not being desiring to exterminate everything that's in our path. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. Friends, remember that it was by the love of God that you were pulled out from the dust and newly planted as wheat. The kingdom that we see in verse 31, too, will begin as insignificant in size and impact, but because surprisingly large and powerful. Closely paired now, this is where the parable goes from the wheat and the weeds now to a parable of a mustard seed. Matthew is portraying these parables together for a reason. Closely paired with the parable of the mustard seed, you see in verses 31 and 32, and then another parable uh, beginning there in verse, um, I think, 33 and 34. The second parable makes much of the same point as the first. Just as small amounts of yeast or leaven make dough rise to produce large amounts of bread, so too the tiny, inespicuous kingdom will one day have a surprisingly great impact. The extensive and intensive growth of the kingdom is promised here. So the larger context of the parable, and then there are two parables inside of it, or within it, is about the promise of the kingdom's future being even more powerful than the kingdom's present. These, these people were looking at Jesus and going, what do you do with all this evil? And he says, first of all, that's my business. Second of all, I will deal with it. And third of all, if you think the kingdom of God is so tiny, just let me give you two examples of how it may look miniature, but it will grow to overtake the world. This parable is a parable of the kingdom. It's a parable of judgment against evil. It's a parable of lifting up of righteousness by the Lord. Look at verses 30 of Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 30. It says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. See what he is promising to do with evil there. Or look down in verse 40 in the implication of the text. So just as the tares are gathered or the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. It continues on. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you have a problem with evil in the world, Jesus is saying, just wait for the end. And then he continues on in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The master may seem indifferent now, but he is actually active and he is very patient. He operates on a different timetable than the servants. They wanted something to be done about the weeds now, and he's determined to let them grow together until a final harvest, which will bring him even more glory than before. At the end, what the Lord calls the day of the Lord, or judgment day, according to our scriptures, the removal of evil will come. That is the promise of the text. The actual blotting out of evil will happen. God in Christ promises that he will sort things out perfectly, completely, and eternally. Yet, you and I struggle weekly, and regularly with why not now? Is it not bad enough? Have you not seen enough weeds, God? But one of Jesus' apostles would answer this for us. No doubt he would have been hearing Jesus on this day. He would have been listening to Jesus at this very moment. It would be him who would write later to encourage the saints as they endure suffering. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord 
he says, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. A promise appears hidden within the parable of the wheat and the weeds and its explanation. There are two tiny parables where one of them seems tiny, seemingly insignificant, this mustard seed and this parable of leaven. And if you understand the context of what Jesus is asking them to understand is that evil is present, evil is terrible, but do not doubt the work of the Lord in delivering and growing his kingdom. For at that time, in verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Friends, remind yourselves that 2 Peter was written about 2,000 years ago. No one knew you. No one knew your parents. No one knew your grandparents. And isn't it kind of the Lord to be even patient with you? And friends, as you see weeds in the field, pray that God would be patient and draw them to himself. He says, I let the wheat and the weeds grow together. But wait for the time of the harvest. Trust that God knows what he is doing in the meantime. It may be hard to trust when you see the field filled with weeds, but look beyond the field to a hill far away where stands the old cross where he died for these very weeds and wheat. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, evil will lose. It lost that day and it will lose finally when it is burned up and Jesus will reign forever. So in conclusion, we have a clear call from this passage. We ought to proclaim the kingdom and trust that God will judge evil in the end. And a lot of us, we can understand this within the context of church history. Church history, it is so obvious that Christianity has been threatened in every fashion imaginable, yet the gospel still advances. If you want to grow a church, persecute it. If you want to increase people's faith, hate it. Yet the gospel advances. Evil cannot stop the kingdom of God. That's the lesson of this text. There are people, even presently today, throughout the world, who are facing extinction by the hands of evil. One by one, they near the place of another casualty of war, and they are asking for prayer because they believe that God is on his throne and is completely in control. You and I probably watched the same news this week where I was talking to someone on the phone and go, look, I'm 35, and I've never seen anything like this. A sovereign country invades another country where it doesn't seem like they're doing anything wrong. They just want to take it over. That hasn't happened in my lifetime that I know of. And I've been amazed within this and emboldened at some of the articles that have been coming out about the particular churches and pastors from a couple of these places in Ukraine. When attacked, these pastors went to their meeting houses and stayed. When having an opportunity to leave, these servants of the church remained to preach this morning, to lead corporate worship under the cover of darkness tonight. One pastor is there, but is a citizen of another country where his, where his home country was asking if they could evacuate him. He was sent there as a missionary in order to plant and pastor a church. And in writing to others on why he refused evacuation from his own country, he said, how should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war, when there is a constant fear in society? I am convinced that if the church is not relevant in times of crisis, if we have nothing to say now, then there is not a relevant time for us in times of peace. Friends, we look around and see the world as horrible. And it's at that moment that the shine of the gospel glorifies the Lord. 
He continues on and says, we believe the church is a place of spiritual struggle. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to bring our requests to God. We are forced to meet now in darkness, which only adds solemnness and power to our prayers. Another pastor in Kiev who went unnamed was asked why he wasn't leaving his place after half of his building had been bombed. He said, I would never leave my people as we're under political and physical attack. A shepherd is called to stay with the sheep, not just when grass is ready for feasting, but also when wolves approach the field. Friends, why do they seemingly have this power and courage in this moment? Why do they have this approach that when the enemy and physical, political force is around them because they know that what they offer their parishioners every single day is what the world needs. They know that the world is full of evil and that one day all evil will be dealt with. But in the meantime, what the world needs is the good seed from the good master. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to our confusion and our desire to know more of who you are and to be clearly told of what you do. Lord, we do look around within a foot away from us into the ends of the earth and we see that Satan is having a day. And we recognize that it's even in our own hearts that are sinful. And so we pray that by your spirit you would, that you would reconcile us to yourself and remind us of your forgiveness. We pray that you re- would regenerate the hard hearts of those who seek to do evil. Lord, we pray that your kingdom, which has no end, would go out and testify of your glory. And Lord, in the ways that you have called us, we pray that you would equip us to be courageous and to speak of your offensive gospel that saves sinners like us. We pray this in the name of your conquering Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen.